First reading, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The second reading is taken from Romans chapter 11. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. And if it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles in as much as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, 
consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things and to him be the glory forever Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we want to listen carefully to you in your word this morning as we come to this chapter, a long chapter with lots going on. And help us to humble ourselves before you, to hear things that may be difficult at first to hear and understand to be humble about the things that are beyond our understanding, to trust in you, the God who knows us better than we know ourselves, who made us, who loves 
all that you have made. And might we grow in our understanding of you, of your plan for your people, Jew and Gentile, and for your whole world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes it is helpful to remember that today is the middle of the story, but not the end. So uh, let me give you an example. Colonel Sanders. You know who Colonel Sanders is? KFC. Uh, he, he had multiple job failures in his early life. By his mid-50s, he had been a failed fireman, a failed lawyer, a failed insurance salesman, a failed ferry boat operator, a failed oil lamp business owner, and a failed petrol station manager. And then he sold his first franchise for his fried chicken recipe, and the rest is history. So often we live our lives as if today is the end of the story, as if there is no hope because of the circumstances that we face right now. And actually, we sometimes do that as well with people. We do that with people and their Christian faith, or lack of it. So we think of a loved one or a friend, and, and oh, they used to look like they were walking with Jesus, but now they're nowhere. And we think, what a terrible end of the story. And we think, this person's never going to trust in Jesus. It's never going to happen. What a terrible end of the story. And in Romans chapter 11, that is the issue facing Paul as he continues to grapple with what God's plan is now for his people, the Jews. In chapter 9, as we've been hearing, we, we heard of his heartache, his sorrow, but also, beyond that, his confidence in God that he has chosen some but not all of the descendants of Abraham. And he's further chosen some who are not descendants of Abraham at all. He's chosen Gentiles, and all of that is because of his mercy from beginning to end. None of it depends on us. It is faith alone, in Christ alone, for all people everywhere. And that then was the message of chapter 10. All people everywhere, whether you're Jew or Gentile, need to put your faith in Jesus. But still, he's still grappling with this fact. Many Jewish people have not done that, even in his day. And that is the question he comes back to then at the beginning of chapter 11. So verse 1, you can see on page 1138, did God reject his people? But again, his answer is clear, by no means. So his message is this, it is not the end of the story. There is more to come. And the key to understanding how this extraordinary story, this plan of God comes to an end and why, the key to understanding it is the surprising and attractive grace of God and that's what we can see first of all in the first 16 verses God's grace is surprising and attractive so let's look at that so so we circle back again to a point Paul's made again and again through these chapters he keeps coming back to this look how merciful God is look how kind he is and so in one sense, the question from, from the first uh, 10 verses in, in chapter 11 is, is what's new that he hasn't said before? What has he not said before? What's he emphasizing in a new way? And there's a couple of different things. One is the surprise of what it means for God to show kindness to his people. Because if you look, his kindness means both that fewer than you might expect are part of his chosen people, he says, but also more. 
more than you might expect. So he starts with more. Verse 1, has God rejected his people? <clears throat> no. And he says, I, Paul, am exhibit A, if you like. And furthermore, he says, I'm not the only one. So remember how Elijah complained in the cave that he was the only one left. No, said God. Verse 4, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And that episode is, is in um, 1 Kings chapter 17 to 20. Paul's point, though, is that Paul is not just choosing a few. There is more. There is a faithful remnant from among the Jewish people who are bucking the trends and putting their faith in Jesus. And it's all about God's grace and not works. Now, we know throughout history, for Jewish people to put their faith in Jesus has been extremely costly at times. But there's not just a few. We met one last week. We had Stephen with us, Stephen Pash, our mission partner in Geneva, who preached on the need to speak about Jesus to Jewish people. But there's a further aspect to the surprise here, because although there are more than you would expect, he's saying, there, there are also, in another sense, fewer. There, those who, verse 7, he says, those who sought so earnestly to pursue God their way, they insist on saving themselves through their own keeping of the law. The law that God gave to Moses was never intended for that purpose of being a kind of way of saving yourself. But the problem is God's people used it like that. No, actually, they are excluded. And their hearts have therefore been hardened. So verses 8 to 10. <clears throat> and still today, it's the same, isn't it? So the religious person who thinks it's their deeds, their good works, their uprightness that saves them, whether that person is Jew or Gentile, that kind of person who thinks, I can prove myself, I can do enough, I can keep the rules... That kind of person, actually, the Bible says, is excluded. While the person who, do, who knows, I don't deserve anything, that person is included when they put their trust in Jesus. By God's grace. That is the shock, the scandal, the surprise of God's grace, his kindness. God's grace is surprising. But then, Paul goes on in these verses, it, it's also a grace that is attractive. It's designed, he says, to make unrepentant Israel envious do you see that so verse 11 still despite all the rejection that has gone on are they beyond recovery no rather can you see this second half of verse 11 because of their transgression salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious and again you can see verse 14 in the hope that I may somehow arise my own people to envy and save some of them. Paul is essentially appealing to a kind of FOMO, if you like, a fear of missing out. When, the, when he says, when his Jewish brothers and sisters, when they see the riches and the blessings that the Gentiles of all people have received, they will wake up and see, oh, this could be for me too. That is the, the attractiveness of God's kindness. That is how it's designed. And so the immediate question to us if we're Christians and as a church is this would the salvation that we have and that we enjoy would that make others envious would it make our Jewish neighbours envious would it make our Gentile neighbours envious 
Would they look at us and say, I wish I had what they have. I want to know what that is. I want to know more. That is how it's always supposed to be with God's people. That's how it's meant to be in the first place with Abraham and his descendants. So we heard that in the first reading from Genesis chapter 12. The promise all the way back to Abraham was, I will bless you and through you all nations will be blessed. It was never just about the chosen descendants of Abraham. It was always with a view to blessing and including anyone from the whole world. And the point was, Israel were intended to reflect God and his goodness and his kindness and his grace in the world and make the nations long to know this God too. But they didn't do that. And now it's turned the other way around. You see, it's the Gentiles' turn to reflect back to the Jews the same thing, God's extraordinary kindness and grace. So that's the question. Are we doing that? You see, Christian history has at times been marred by shocking anti-Semitism. And Stephen shared one example, or a couple of examples last week. He had an example from, of all people, Martin Luther, which I think was a surprise. If you haven't seen that before, that will have been a surprise and a shock. That was Martin Luther speaking towards the end of his life. Um, he was grieving that the Jews he knew had, had not accepted Christ. And, and, and Martin Luther, to put it bluntly, you know, he spoke to all his opponents in a pretty horrible way. Um, he was a remarkable man, but he had many faults. Um, but, you know, we can see he was an example of somebody who spoke in a way that Christians should not be speaking about Jewish people. But more than that, then, the question is when outsiders look at us, what do they see? Is it the, the caricature of Christians that many have? Is it sort of, you know, self-righteous, self-interested, self-satisfied, self-assured? Is it too easy for them to conclude, well, you have to be perfect to join this lot? Or could they see... Do you know what? These guys really believe what they say about the grace of God. Because they're different from the rest of the world. Instead of constantly trying to measure up to others' expectations and their own, they are secure in God's opinion of them. Instead of needing to put on a front and conceal what's really going on, they are able to share what they're struggling with. Because they believe God's grace applies to them and they show that to one another in the face of sin and weakness and failure. God's kindness, his grace, is designed to be attractive. It is surprising and attractive. And then in the rest of the chapter, Paul does some application. says, this is the so what. So then, second point, verses 17 to 24. So what, first of all, do not be arrogant. Do not be arrogant. In verse 16, he celebrates how great it would be to see the Jewish people return to, to God. He, he brings the, the idea of the roots and the branches of an olive tree. And he says to his predominantly Gentile readers in Rome, he says, don't get above yourselves. Never forget, you're just branches who have been grafted into someone else's tree. Now, I'm not much of a gardener. Let's be, be clear. And I wouldn't be able to tell you how to do this. But the, the point is, there is some kind of way of joining a previously separated branch onto an olive root. 
think it involves wax, but someone can confirm that for me later. But that you, you can do this. It is a thing you can do. And if you've been brought into a tree that way, says Paul, don't think that you now, as the branch that's been grafted in, now somehow support the root. No, the root supports you. Can you see that verse 18? You see, you are latecomers to the party. This is a story that began with those promises to Abraham. You are now also children of Abraham, but you are joined by faith. So we're all in the tree on the same terms, but don't get above yourself and start to think, really, this tree is all about me. No, you've joined something else. So be grateful. Never forget where you came from if you are a Gentile. Do you see that? Verse 20, do not be arrogant, but tremble. And then there's a little warning to the potentially arrogant. So we need to reckon with this. We need to listen to this. He said, remember how God did not spare the natural branches. So in other words, he sent his people, the Jewish people, into exile. He, he was, there was judgment that came on his people when they failed in the mission that he'd given them, and they sinned against him. So remember... He will not spare you either if, verse 22, you do not continue in his kindness. God is both kind and stern, he says. Verse 22, can you see that? The kindness and sternness of God. This is the kind of description C.S. Lewis picks up in the Narnia Narnia stories, and a bit that I often quote, you will have heard this before. The children ask if Aslan the lion is safe, and Mr. Bieber says, of course he's not safe, he's a lion. He's stern, in other words, but then Mr. Bieber says, but he is good. So, so the point is, God is something you don't mess with God, you don't take His kindness for granted, but you can rest in it, you can continue in it, because He's good, He's kind, He's loving. Go to Him. Now, this is the kind of thing that can get us into all kinds of knots if we're if we're not careful, because it makes us go, "Oh, you know, does that mean a, can a Christian lose their salvation?" You know, didn't we just have a whole chapter where Paul said Christians are chosen and predestined by God? I mean, how does this all fit together? Well, the answer is God knows those who are his and he chooses those who are his. But for us today, from our perspective, what is our job? Our job is to trust him, to have faith and to continue in that faith in him. And we hear that and people sometimes say, well, yeah, there you go. You see, it does depend on us after all. We have to have faith. That's what you're saying. We do have to do something. But you see, the point is, with, the point with faith is it's not something that we do that is in any way a brownie point. You know, it's not something that we do that, it, that is a thing that means our salvation is anything less than 100% God's doing. So the best way I can think of explaining this is by thinking about chairlifts. I guess one or two may be going skiing, I don't know, over the next month or two. God saving us is like him providing us with a chairlift to get us from the bottom of the mountain to the top. So where does faith fit into that? Well, faith is sitting in the chair. And sitting in the chair doesn't earn you anything, does it? It doesn't mean you deserve to be taken to the top. You're just sitting in the chair. You know, when you get to the top of the mountain, there's no round of applause for sitting in the chair. You know, granted, there are some amazing videos on YouTube of people who somehow manage to mess up sitting in the chair and cause complete chaos by kind of sliding down the mountain and taking loads of people out on their skis as they go down. But, you know, basically the point is you just have to sit there 
and the chair will take you up the mountain. Put your faith in Jesus and God will do the heavy lifting. But can you see what he says, verse 22? He says, then continue in that faith. Continue in that faith, in that kindness, which is in effect saying, don't jump out of the chair. Stay in the chair to get to the top of the mountain. That's what he's warning them about. Saying, don't, don't fail to just continue sitting in the chair and trusting in Jesus. See, the point is, only God knows, in the end, who are his elect, his chosen. He has chosen, but only he knows who that is. So what do we, we have to go on external evidence, which is a good measure most of the time, but if someone appears to be in the tree and then does not continue in the tree, well, the point is they weren't ever really part of the tree at all. Although, remember, we're still in the middle of the story, not the end. Sometimes people backslide and then they come back and all that kind of thing. So we don't write people off. But the point is, we don't know what God knows. We go on external evidence, which is a pretty good measure, but not definitive, because we're not God. God is. Well, then people ask, what about me? They say, don't they? So we say this. How do I know, then, if I will continue in the tree? And the answer is, listen to what God asks you to do. What does he say? He says, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus today. So we've heard just in the previous chapter, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's what he asks us to do. Put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus today and make preparation to trust him tomorrow. That's how you know you are in the tree. Now, there's a lot more we could say about that. Why not put a question in the Q&A if you want to talk about that more? But this point about branches and trees is really saying to them, them, and us now, don't get complacent. Keep trusting today and make preparation to do that again tomorrow. But the flip side then, and this is the next point, do not lose hope, verses 25 to 32. Do not lose hope. So if you could be lost from the tree in the extreme circumstances of, of, of not continuing to trust Jesus, Paul is saying the original branches that have been cut off could just as easily be brought back in. So remember where we started. The story is not over yet. And that is Paul's point now. And these verses are, are, are relatively famous or even infamous. But the key is to read them in the context of the argument Paul has made so far. So verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And remember at this point, the Gentiles coming in is meant to be a way of wooing Israel back, of making her jealous and envious, of making her say, isn't it amazing? That God extends his grace to sinful people. You know, we have sinned, so Israel will say, can we have some of that grace too, please? As we see others who don't deserve God's grace, receiving that grace. And then verse 26 seems to be Paul's way of saying that in the end, he says, do you see, in this way all Israel will be saved. What on, what on earth does that mean? Well, in the end, as Jesus returns, as the deliverer comes from Zion... 
which is the kind of final last day, Jesus returns kind of language verse 20, in, in verse 26. There will be some kind of return of Jewish people to their Messiah. Now, let's just dig into this to see exactly what's going on here. That word all, of course, needs to be read carefully, doesn't it? So he, he can't, you know, we kind of think, you've got to read this in context. He can't mean all the Israelites who've ever lived, all the people of Israel, because his argument so far has been very clear that only some of the descendants of Abraham are part of that remnant. So whatever that word all means, it can't just mean it would contradict everything he said if it meant, if it meant um, all, all, all the Jews who've ever lived. But on the other hand, he does seem to mean specifically Jewish Israel, given that throughout chapter 11, and especially in the verse before, in verse 25, Israel definitely means Jewish Israel. So Israel here in verse 26 can't mean a kind of another, lab, another word for the church. Because that, that, that would be odd to have changed from just the verse before where it, it clearly is about the Israel that's experienced hardening until in contrast to the Gentiles. So he does seem to mean some kind of return of some individual Jewish people. And so that word all then means all the Israelites who are going to be saved will be saved. Do you see? And they will be saved through this mechanism of God using the Gentiles to make them jealous, as he's made clear in the previous verses. So that, that would be what that phrase, in this way, means. In the way that Gentiles come to, well, predominantly Gentiles come to faith in Jesus, and because as they see that, they get jealous, Jewish people put their faith in Jesus too. And so they may be enemies now, he says, verse 28. And by the way, that's because at some point, uh, sorry, at that point, as he's writing, some Jews were persecuting some Christians. So that would have felt like appropriate language to use at that time. That's not a sort of universal word to use about Jewish people by any means, but it would have made sense to Christians in Rome because that would have been what they would have experienced from some of the Jewish people there. But they are loved, he says, verse 28. And God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. You, that, means, that means you can't call them back. And so these, those promises to Abraham have not been rescinded. They've not been withdrawn. In Christ, they've only been deepened and fulfilled. So, at the moment, of course, a huge concern for all people everywhere at the moment is, is the modern state of Israel and Gaza, isn't it? And people want to know, well, has this got something to do with that? And some people say, you know, this, that's exactly what this is about. Well, if there, is a, if there is any sense that the promise of land for Israel remains, that's the question, I suppose, isn't it? Because there was a promise of land made to Israel, Genesis chapter 12. And so the question is, is there any sense in which that promise remains for the Jewish people today? And I was talking to Stephen, actually, Stephen Pashed again in the week, and um, he, he brought that up last week, if you were here in his talk. And, and we agreed, when we were talking, you see, this, this is a promise, whatever it is, it's a promise that must be subsequent to Jewish people putting their faith in Jesus. 
Because that's what's happening here as he talks about God's gift and his call being irrevocable. It's in the context of Jewish people putting their faith in Jesus. So it, it's not, it can't be about some kind of separate thing where there is still a promise that we should be trying to um, uh, see happen for, for Jewish people to have a land there and now. But this is really important to hear and understand. So it's really important to say that is different from saying that you can't support uh, Jewish people having the, the, the land of Israel. They're two different questions. The point is here, is this promise here, is this promise here about the land in the Middle East? That's the question here. And so let's deal with that for a second. It, it may therefore be that if, if this is about something that happens after Jewish people have put their faith in Jesus, it may well be that that involves the land at some point in the future when Jesus returns although then you have to ask the question of what that means in the context of God remaking heaven and earth and, and land becoming the whole earth and, and all that kind of thing um, but kind of separate point from what is actually here in these verses in front of us we also need to say this really clearly you see given the history of the Jewish people and the severe persecution they have suffered, not least during the Holocaust, it is absolutely right for them to have a homeland. And it is right for them to be able to defend themselves. Now, I think, as a Christian, I think it is right and important to say that, but I don't say it based on what Paul says here in these verses. Can you see the difference? You see, Paul's concern is primarily not about the foreign policies that modern nations should have. That, it just isn't what this is about. But he, what, what he's saying here there is there is real hope that there will be a return of some of his Jewish brothers and sisters to Jesus, and therefore what he's wanting his readers in Rome, his, his Gentile, predominantly Gentile readers in Rome to do, is he wants them to love the Jews that they come into contact with by sharing the good news about Jesus with them. And I don't know about you, but that is the great challenge that I have heard from these chapters 9 to 11. That the most loving thing you can do for a Jewish friend or neighbour is not to say, stay silent on Jesus. Which is our great temptation, if we're honest, isn't it? Because remember chapter 10, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And the point is, so many have literally no idea who Jesus really is. They don't know who this is we're talking about. And so love means we need, in appropriate ways, to share that, to share him with them, because he is for them. Okay, now again, please put questions in the Q&A if you'd like to explore that a bit further sjdh.org, Romans 9.1.1. But where Paul then finishes is where we need to finish. So here we go. Marvel at God's wisdom. And the point here is simply this. Would you do it like this if you were God? I know I wouldn't. This is not a plan that you or I would make up. That's what Paul is saying. But God has arranged salvation history in such a way that all the glory continually goes to God as he repeatedly chooses people who are lost and undeserving. That's the point. 
So he started with one man, Abraham, who had nothing to distinguish him from others, and he said, I'll make you a great nation. And he rescued them from slavery, and even though they rejected him, he kept coming after them, and he rescued them again from exile. And they rejected him, and he went with his grace and mercy instead to unbelieving, undeserving pagan Gentiles, and he showed them mercy, and they came in. And the promise now is that that mercy to the undeserving will again be shown. The story is not over yet. Not for Jews, not for you and me, not for those we love and long to see come to faith in Jesus. Exactly when and how, we still don't know. But our job is simply to still keep holding out this gospel. And we do know this, all the glory will always go to the God who loves and saves those who don't deserve it. Would you do it like that? I think you know, we, we think, my, my little brain would not be capable of coming up with a plan like this. That's the point, isn't it? But he's saying, that's okay. All the glory goes to God. His wisdom surpasses everything. So let's finish by again reading these verses and marveling at this God, who is good, who is wise, who is loving, who is going to get his plan done for his glory. So, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.